like many of you, part of my family tradition is to, at Christmas time, is to have a nativity scene. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a, a little stable, and then we have different pieces of uh, some kind, made out of some kind of material for Jesus, and, and he's laying in a manger, and we have Mary and Joseph, we have some animals, there's a, um, an angel or two, I think, and they're the shepherds and what we call the wise men. And this morning, as we close out our Christmas series, looking at the advent of Jesus, we're going to be talking this morning about these, what are called magi. And you may have heard of them as the three kings. We're going to be talking about these people. And we're going to be coming to understand what God wants to say to us through their inclusion in the Christmas story. For me, as I look at the Christmas story, I'm always intrigued by the kinds of people that God included in this incredibly important event in all of history, that God came to us in the person of Jesus. And so the people that he invites into this story, it matters to us. It's important. God is teaching us through that encounter. So if you have your Bibles with you, <clears throat> I want to read. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm just going to apologize up front. Getting over a cold, settled in my chest, so I'm, my voice is a little funky this morning. But uh, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1, listen to what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this had happened hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. God had said through the prophet that his son was coming and would indeed be born in the city of David, which is the city of Bethlehem. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, it's our prayer that you would open our hearts to the things that you want us to see. God, I just pray along with Danny's prayer 
that we would receive whatever it is we need to hear today. Empower us by your truth. Strengthen us by your truth. Call us back to yourself by your truth. Speak to every person who's here this morning by your spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now I want to clarify just a couple of things about the Magi. We have, uh, some of us grew up and we sang the song, We Three Kings. Anybody here know, sing that song at some point? Well, it's a, the song was wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us that there were three of them that came from the east. We have no idea how many there were. The reason they uh, came to the number three was simply because there were three gifts that were offered. But we have no idea. Probably there were more than three of them. And they probably were not kings. They would have come from an area from, from the east of Israel, which we know today as Iran and Iraq. There were foreigners. And there were probably scientists. They were very educated. They understood and they were watching the things of the world. And when something changed in the heavens, when the stars changed, they recognized that, they saw that, and they got up and they moved and they followed it. We'll say more about that in just a moment. And the final thing I want you to know about these magi is that being scholars, they followed the star and they were not there when Jesus was born. It's very clear in the text. They came, when they came and they saw the child, it was just Mary who was there, and Mary is now in a house in Bethlehem. Remember, they had no place to live before. Now she's in a home in Bethlehem. So we don't know how long it had been, no longer than 15 to 18 months. Because what does Herod do when he finds out from these wise men, from these magi, that a king to the Jews had been born, what does he do? He wants to kill this king. And so he goes out and he has every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two murdered because he wanted to kill the potential king. God warns Mary and Joseph in a dream and they flee to Egypt. And eventually they come back and they settle in Nazareth. Now having said this, what I want you to see are five questions of faith that come out of this passage. I think very powerful, they certainly were very powerful for me. Five questions that I asked myself from the example that I read in Matthew chapter 2 in the story of the Magi. And here's the first thing that I want you to, question I want you to ask. Do I have a heart for the people of the world? Do I have a heart for the people of the world? Each of us needs to answer that question here this morning. Listen to what we read in Matthew 1.1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, possibly they had Jewish roots, but there's no indication of that. Certainly they were foreigners. They were Iranian, as we would call Iranian or Iraqi today, but they were, far, they were from the Far East, and they had traveled this great distance following the star because they wanted to see the king who was born to the Jews. 
They were foreigners. Now, I don't know about you, but that really strikes me. In this incredible story, God invites people. We saw the shepherds who were outcasts in that culture. We saw Mary and Joseph. They had nothing significant about them that God would choose them from our human perspective. We see that they're born in this, in this stable. Jesus is born in this stable, and Mary gives birth in a stable. There's nothing significant about the people that God has invited into the story, which is an encouragement to all of us who feel insignificant in this world. Though the world may look at us as insignificant, God looks at you and he says, you are significant. You matter to God. You matter to him. Your life matters to him. The choices you make in your life matters to him. He wants you to be his forever child. And then, suddenly, we see these foreigners. They're not even from Israel. And they come to worship the child that has been born, the king of the Jews, God in human flesh. This is really significant to me, and I'll tell you why. Because for the Jews, this would be scandalous. When they look at the people that God invited to be part of the story of the birth of Jesus, it would make no sense to them. Rather, God would come to the religious elite. Rather, God would come to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the chief priests. These are the people that should be part of the story, but they're not. Because God is saying something very powerful to us. God did not come just for the religious elite. God came for all people. God did not just come for the Jews. God came for the Gentiles. God did not just come for Americans. God came for people throughout the world. And I think that we, like Israel, have a tendency to see the Lord God of the Scriptures as being an American as being our God, not the world's God. He's our God. He belongs to us in America. For our country was founded upon biblical standards. If you read the, particularly the Declaration of Independence, and you, you see these incredible statements about God and about his providence, his sovereignty, his control. He is the one who has given us unalienable rights. He is the one who has endowed us in the image of God, created us in his image. But I think there's a tendency today, as there was in Israel at the time that Jesus was born, <coughs> to, see, to see the nation from a very nationalistic perspective. God belongs to us. He doesn't belong to the world. He belongs to me. He belongs to us. If you look at the stories from the Old Testament, you see that there was a lot of nationalism. And you see that the nation saw themselves as God's special people, which they were, but they were called to be God's special people so that the good news of who God is would be proclaimed throughout the earth. But they wanted to hoard him for themselves. He was our God. He wasn't Egypt's God. He wasn't a serious God. 
He was our God. He wasn't Roman's God, Rome's God. He was our God. And friends, I think there's a tendency in America today for some of us to see God as just being America's God. He's not. I love my country, and I love my fellow Americans, but my brothers and sisters in Christ are all over the world. My brothers and sisters are those who love Jesus and given themselves to Jesus. I have brothers and sisters in North Korea. I have brothers and sisters in Iran. I have brothers and sisters in China. I have brothers and sisters in Russia. And we need to be very careful that we don't see God as being our God, but that God wants to use us to reach the world. Why has God blessed our nation? That we would reach the world with the good news of Jesus, amen? And that should be our heart, and that should be our passion. Here's a second thing that we see in this incredible account, and that is, am I missing what God is doing? Oh my gosh, every time I read this, this account, this is the question I'm asking myself. What am I missing? What is God doing that I'm not seeing in my life, in the church, in the community, in the world? What am I missing? Listen to what we read in, um, in, verses one, in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Listen to this. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, I guess it's, pop, it's, it's possible that God only allowed them to see the star, but my guess is these were scholars. These were seekers of truth. They were looking at what was happening in the heavens. And when God brought together something incredible in the heavens as a celebration of the birth of his son, it was not lost on these scholars. They saw it. They saw it. And as I read this account, I'm, I ask myself this question. God, where are you at work right now and I'm missing it? God, what are you doing in my life, in the church, in the community, in the world that I'm not seeing? God, what am I missing? I don't want to miss it. Do you want to miss it? I want to see it. Well, friends, if we believe in a God who is sovereign over the world, over the universe, if we believe in a God who would send his son to die for us and then give us his very spirit to live in us, this is a God who is active. God is not watching us from a distance. God is active in the life of every person who makes room for him. But I think what's remarkable is we miss it. We miss it. Now, here are the religious leaders. They're teaching about the coming of the Messiah. They're teaching that the Messiah is coming. And they are, they are excited about the coming of the Messiah. And yet, they don't even see it. Because they're not looking. Their eyes are not opened. Their heart is not opened. And then there are these foreigners out of foreign land who are looking and they notice the star. And they, God gives them the ability to understand the significance of what that star is. 
Friends, I think you and I miss so much of what God is doing around us. One of the things that I believe is that God is at work every day, every moment of every day, and his invitation is come and join me in what I am doing. Come and be a part of what I am doing. But we miss it. We're like the religious leaders. We're going through all the religious motions. We go to church. We might even read our Bible, pray, but our eyes are not really open to what God is doing. And there's reasons for that. I just wrote a couple down. We're busy, right? We're busy. And we're distracted by so many things. Remember when Mary and Martha, uh, Jesus comes with the disciples to the home of Mary and Martha. And Martha is is caught up in making sure the house is clean and the food that needs to be prepared is prepared. And she's doing all of these things and she notices that there's Mary just sitting there at the feet of Jesus. And she says, Jesus, make her work. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better. We're busy. For a lot of us, Christmas just came and went because we were so busy doing all the things that we should be doing. We don't take the time to just sit at the feet of God. Sit at the feet of Jesus. There's a prayer that I have not been praying for a while, but for many, many years I would pray every morning when I awoke. And I'm doing it again now. Lord, I want to see what you are doing. God, show me where you are at work that I may join you in what you are doing. God, I don't want to miss it. And friends, here's the good news. You don't have to be a pastor to pray that prayer or to see what God is doing. That's the, what we see throughout the story of the birth of Jesus. I think another reason is we're so focused on ourselves or on our family or the people that we love. We're so focused that we can't see beyond it. There's nothing wrong with loving our families. There's nothing wrong with loving our friends. There's nothing wrong with loving ourselves in a healthy way. But it is a problem when we can't see God because we're so distracted by the needs of those around us. Or a third thing is expectations. There may be some of you here today, you have no expectation that you will see God do anything. You have no expectation that you will see God do anything around you, be at work around you. That is not biblical. God is at work all the time. I want to see it. I don't want to miss it. I want to see what he's doing. And I want to join him in it. And it brings us then to the, next, to the third point, and that is this. Do I truly seek the Lord? Do I truly seek the Lord? You know, it's one thing for the Magi to see the star, but it's quite another for them to get up pack all their things, and it was quite an entourage because they made quite a scene when they came into Bethlehem, so much so that word of their, of their coming went to Herod, and Herod invited them to the palace. So it wasn't like these three guys kind of snuck into town. This was an entourage coming from, the, uh, from a, a nation in the east and, a, and a, great, a great distance away. You see, they got up when they saw the star, they packed their belongings, 
And they said, we're going to go see what God is doing. And they began to take the journey to Bethlehem. Listen to what we read here in verses 9 and 10. After they had heard the king, King Herod, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw, listen to this, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. What is that about? They knew, and I don't know, again, the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of faith they had, if they had some kind of Jewish background, if they worshiped lots of gods, I don't know. But they were overjoyed when they saw the star because their search, they were seeking this child who was born king of the Jews. All they wanted was to see and to meet this king. Friends, are we seeking the Lord? We read in the book of Jeremiah, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Finding God, seeing God, opening our heart to God, seeing what he's doing around us in my family, in my neighborhood, in my school, my workplace, in my church, in my life, seeing what God is doing and joining him in that work is the most important thing we can do as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus. I want to see it. I want to see it. I know some of you, you do see it. And it brings you great joy because you expect that God is going to break through by the presence of his spirit in your life and he is going to bring truth to your life, truth to your heart. He's going to be at work somewhere and he is going to reveal that to you so that he uses you to be the person to make an impact, an eternal impact in the lives of others. Isn't that exciting? not that incredible? And I love what it says when they saw the star they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed because they knew that they, their quest was to find the king. I want to ask you this morning, is your ultimate quest to know the king? The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. To know means intimacy. I want to know Christ. I want to know who he is. I want to know what he's doing. I want to know what it means to be his disciple. I want to know what it means to be his follower. I want to know Christ. I want my life. He, later he says in Galatians, he, said, he talks about his death, and he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because he knows Jesus, and he knows the joy of, of finding him, of discovering him. So how do we seek God with all of our heart? Well, you're here. That's huge. We seek God by reading the scriptures <clears throat> with an open heart. God, what are you saying to me? God, what are you communicating to me? Not what are you communicating to my spouse or my child so I can go tell them how they can be better. But God, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me today? 
Where do I need to be convicted of sin? Where do I need to be reminded of promises? Where do I need to be empowered by truth? God, what are you saying to me today? You see, this is the heart of these wise men. And even if they were not believers, even if they were not religious people, God used them to teach us invaluable lessons. Here's the next thing that I want you to see. <clears throat> what gift or what gifts do I bring to this king? What gifts do I bring to this king? They came to worship the king. They knew they were coming to see a king, so they packed up gifts to give to this king, to honor him, to bless him, to let them know that they, that they were in humility bowing down before him. Now, one of the things I love about our nativity scene is each of the three, they're kings in our nativity scene, but all three are, are bowing before Jesus. And they bow before Jesus. They came to worship this child. Can you imagine the humility? Here are incredibly learned, smart people. And they come to the house where they see Mary, who's just very average person from our worldly perspective. And they see the child, the child. And they bow before the child to worship him. And they give three gifts. The first gift is a gift of gold. And the gold is a symbol of nobility. It's a symbol of royalty. It's, they're saying to this child, you are noble. You are royalty. And so we come to worship you and to honor you for who you are. And then they give the gift of frankincense. Frankincense was a very expensive incense that was rarely used because it was so expensive. And they give him this incredibly expensive, costly gift. And the third thing that they give is myrrh. Now myrrh is, a, is not as expensive, but it was a, a perfume that was used in the preparation of a body to be buried. The king who came, came to die. And the third gift is a gift that would be used to prepare the body for his death. As I thought about this, the question I was asking myself is, what gifts do I bring to honor and to worship this king? What are the gifts that I bring? Notice the gifts are costly. Notice the gifts are thoughtful. Now, what the Bible talks about is the greatest gift that we can give to God is the humility of our hearts. The greatest gift that we can give to God is authentic worship. Where we're not focused on whether we like the songs or not, whether we're not allowing our, our minds to wander during a sermon or during a prayer, but where we're focused and engaged on what God is doing and what he's saying to us. What God says is that the greatest worship is worship that is accompanied by a broken and contrite spirit. What does that mean? It means that we understand our need for God. 
We understand how amazing God is and we lay our lives before him. But we also give him costly gifts, costly to us as an indication of our heart and our place before him. God, all things belong to you and I give to you out of the abundance of what you have given to me. And Lord, I give out of joy. My heart is overjoyed to give. You know, when the, when the wise men saw the star, their hearts were overjoyed. They knew that when they came, they were going to be releasing these costly gifts to this king. And they would leave and go home with far less than what they had brought with them. That is the heart of a worshiper. And then finally, do I trust the promises of God will be fulfilled? Do I believe that the promises of God will be fulfilled. This is an extraordinary, um, something I've never caught before, but I paid attention as I continued to read through. Look, look at verses five and six. When Herod asked the religious leaders, tell us about this Messiah. Where is he going to be born? They said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Hundreds of years before, the prophet wrote this. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then going on, and I didn't read this as part of the passage, but if you go down to 22 and 23, they are now, God is saying, go back to Israel from Egypt, go to Nazareth. Settle in Nazareth. Listen to this. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived, speaking of Joseph, with Mary and Jesus, and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, stay with me. Why is this important? What Matthew is showing to us is that every promise that God ever makes, he will fulfill. Do you believe that? Every promise that God has ever made, God will fulfill. Now, it may be something that I can't see how it could ever happen. God will do it. And we see throughout the Bible, God does the impossible. Remember Sarah and Abraham. Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. Sarah's womb was closed. God had said that they would become the parents of a great nation. Abraham would be the father of a great nation. Sarah has a child. God is the God of the impossible. Because when he makes a promise, he will fulfill that promise. There are literally hundreds of promises that God has made to us. Jesus is coming back again. I know that. And because I know that, I live every day in the confidence that God is coming back again. Jesus is going to return. And my job is to be ready and prepared for that return. God has said, I will never, Don, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You will never be alone by faith in Jesus. You will never be alone. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Even when you forsake him, the Bible says that he cannot forsake you because he cannot deny who he is. This is the God. We are his children and he will never leave us or forsake us. For those who believe and trust in the name of Jesus 
we will never know, according to Romans 8, a moment in all of eternity where we will be separated from the love of Jesus through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, do you know how powerful that is? I can stand with integrity at a funeral where people have lost a precious loved one of their life. And I can say to them with confidence that because that person believed in the name of Jesus and trusted him for their salvation, I can tell them with confidence God was there when they took their last breath. And as they took their last breath, they were not separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Powerful. Why do I believe this? Because that's what the Bible teaches. And God will be faithful to every promise. When I turn my heart fully to Jesus, I will find rest for my soul. When I turn my heart to Jesus, I will find peace. Not peace that is about my circumstances, but peace that has nothing to do with my life circumstances. I can do all things that God calls me to do through him who has called me, by his power, by his strength. I can do whatever it is that God has called me to do. He hears my prayers. Do you ever have days where you just feel like your prayers are bouncing off the walls? Is anybody out there, anybody here listening to this? Am I alone? I may not feel God, but I know he hears my prayers. I may not sense the presence of God in a moment, emotionally, but I know God hears my prayers. And I know that though I may feel alone in a moment, I am not alone in that moment. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Friends, there is so much to say about this incredible account of the wise men. But I want to close with this story. I often hear people say, well, the truly intellectual in our world do not believe in Jesus. That is not true. You go through history. It was the wisest, smartest people in our world that believe in Jesus, often believe in Jesus. Not all, but often believe. I want to just close with this story of a professor at MIT, which is a very learned place. One I would never, they would not even look at uh, my application, I'm sure. <clears throat> Her name is Rosalind Picard. Listen to this. Hear this in light of everything we've talked about. Knowing God is at work, joining him where he's at work, and seeing God reach people. Listen to this. As early as grade school, when I was a straight-A student, I identified with being smart, and I believed smart people didn't need God. As a result, I declared myself an atheist and dismissed people who believed in re religion as being uneducated. In high school, I babysat to earn money. One of my favorite families was a young couple. Both the husband, who was a doctor, and the wife were very sharp. One night after praying for me, they invited me to church. I was stunned. People this smart actually went to church? When Sunday morning came around, I told them I had a stomachache. Eventually, the couple tried a different tack. They said, have you ever read the Bible? The doctor suggested starting with Proverbs. To my surprise, Proverbs was full of wisdom. I had to pause while reading and think deeply about what I was reading. I then read through the entire Bible. 
<clears throat> I felt this strange sense of being spoken to. I began wondering whether there really might be a God. During my freshman year in college, I reconnected with a friend who was a straight-A student and a star on both the basketball court and football field. I had never known anyone so smart and athletic. He then invited me to his church. One Sunday, the pastor got my attention when he asked, who is the Lord of your life? I was intrigued. I was the captain of my ship. But was it possible that God would actually be willing to lead me? In the spirit of Pascal's wager, I decided to run an experiment, believing I had much to gain, but very little to lose. After praying, I prayed, after I prayed this prayer, Jesus Christ, I ask you to be Lord of my life. And my world changed dramatically. It was as if a flat, black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. I felt joy and freedom but also a heightened sense of responsibility and challenge. Today, I'm a professor at the top university in my field. I work closely with people whose lives are filled with medical struggles, people whose children are not healthy. I do not have adequate answers to explain all their suffering, but I know there is a God of unfathomable greatness and love who freely enters into relationship with all who confess their sins and call on their name. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today I walk humbly, having received that most undeserved grace. Boy, is that beautiful. I want to close with this little picture. Jesus once told the story of a man who went out to a field and as the man was walking through the field, he saw this, this treasure. And he opened it and he saw the great, the great treasure that was in this box. And he closed the box and he covered back up and he went and he sold everything that he had. Everything. He had nothing left. He sold it all so that he had enough money to buy the field so that the treasure was his. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. God calls us to give up everything, but what we receive is far, far greater. Do you believe it? Your life will show it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a voice this morning. Thank you for your love and your goodness. God, every time I read of the wise men, I am so challenged because I see, Lord, how how. I just don't watch. I don't see. I'm not going. I'm not responding. I'm just living day by day. God, I don't want to live like that. And I know there are many here that say that as well this morning. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Tell us what we need to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.